She's the lead singer in Blackpink Matters, Franny Choi. <laughs> and they're knock, knock, knocking on Cannon's door, Demand Smith. Wow, and you're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Hi, Denise. Hey, Frano. How you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? How's your uh, hanging out alone inside all the time going? My hanging out <laughs> alone inside all the time is going well. Not always so alone. <laughs> I did have a Corona hookup the other day who told me that I needed to do the laundry, and I felt really called out oh on that. Oh, my God. From my Corona is, to his. <laughs> that, is, that, is like, that is like the kind of humiliation that you don't want in the bedroom you know what i mean like one yeah. is a fan of some light humiliation stuff yeah but i but think i do that. need if anything i do maybe need like i do the laundry dom if anything of all the chores <laughs> you know i'll willingly do anything else but somebody kind of does need to like i do i am a bad boy when it comes to doing this laundry and i was i was kind of like you're right sir <laughs> like, 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 <laughs> i love being like a bratty sub about the chores to no effect, you know, mm-hmm. like for nobody's appreciation. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's the thing. I think like, I find like the like sub dom scale to be so useful like everywhere in my life. Like, you know, truly, like, oh, like truly. I'm a cooking sub. I'm a, you know, a a road trip dom, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, Question, what, what do you think your poems are? Are your poems subs or doms? Ooh. Or mm. tops or bottoms or like what, a, you know. How would you categorize your poems in the like kink and sex role scales? I feel like I want to say switch, but maybe it's more of a bratty sub. Mm. I feel like my poems, like, you know, they do put up a good fight and there's some tension up top, but eventually they always like submit and release, you know, Um, Mm. and just like kind of, you know, do their own thing. And so I think, yeah, that's why I think they're bratty. Like they're putting up a fight at first. Yeah. um, But they really know. They they really just want to be laid down and told what to do. But I do think they're tops. Yeah. Bratty service top. That's my poems. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And I think accurate. (laughs) (laughs) how about you definitely on the subscale right yeah for sure i think that actually they used to be more like i think that my slam poems are tops Mm -hmm. you know oh for sure like hard top you know right 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 right. like Mm -hmm. here's the premise here (laughs) is where how we'll like uh, modulate the premise and here's the ending Yeah, I mean, even if they're sad poems, they're just like, this is what we're doing. Um, Yeah, I think that my poems that like work less well out loud are total subs and total bottoms. They're just Mm. like, read me however you want. I don't know. Mm. (laughs) I don't know how it goes. Yeah, that's true. Bottoms never make any sense. So that that holds true. Just gaping gaping holes of of, uh, interpretation. Oh, wow. You know? Sorry. <laughs> you, you said gaping and my brain like went back to just, you know, so yeah, many no, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, speaking of the erotic and poetry and sex and sentences, um, we got an opportunity to talk to the master of um, infusing poems with the erotic in ways that you might or might not catch, um, Carl Phillips. We're so excited to talk to Carl. We are both such 
enormous fans and pupils um, of Carl's. And it was just great to get to talk to him in his rainbow gummy bear t-shirt and um, beautiful ring light lighting. Um, yeah, he had a ring light, which was which was so nice because this is a podcast. And so yeah, right, like, right, right. here is this well-lit, beautiful <laughs> Carl Phillips just for us. Just for us. For us. Literally just for, just us. for us. So let so us beautiful. tell y'all that, you know, if you haven't seen him, Carl looks good, y'all. Um, Carl looks great. Carl looks amazing. Carl, Still here, still writing the fuck out of these poems. Oh, my God. Um, And we really got to have sit down and have a grand conversation about interiority, about sex, about the syntax, about everything with Carl. Uh, Carl Phillips is the author of 15 books of poetry. 15? Uh, Oh, my God. 15. (laughs) 15. If his books were years, he can now get his permit in drive <laughs> like like in and trust those books pay for the cars um carl phillips is the author of 15 books of poetry most recently pale colors and a tall field uh and wild is the wind which won the los angeles times book prize other honors include the aiken taylor award for modern american poetry the kingsley tufts poetry award a lambda literary award the pen usa award for poetry and fellowships from the guggenheim foundation the Library of Congress, the Academy of American Poets, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. That's a lot of academies right there. Phillips <laughs> has also written two prose books, The Art of Daring, Risk, Restlessness, Imagination, and Coin of the Realm, Essays on the Life and the Art of Poetry. And he has translated Philoctetes of Sophocles for, for Oxford University Press back in 2014. He is a professor of English at Washington University in St. Louis. He is... It. He's Carl Phillips. That's he's it. Yeah. <laughs> and also, also, he's so decorated and so kind, like so generous and down to just kick it. Like, what a fucking gift. What a fucking gift. Let's get into it with Carl Phillips, who's going to start us off with a poem. Okay. This poem is called I'm Being Asked to Be More Specific When It Comes to Longing. When the forest ended, So did the star flowers and wild ginger that for so long had kept us company. The clearing opened before us, a vast meadow of silverrod, each stem briefly an angled argument against despair, then only weeds by a better name again, as incidental as the backdrop the ocean made just beyond the meadow. Like taking a horsewhip to a swarm of bees that they might more easily disperse, We'd at last reached the point in twilight where twilight seems most a bowl designed to turn routinely, but as if by accident, half roughly over. Bells somewhere, the kind of bells that, before being housed finally in their towers, used to have to be baptized. Each was given to swing by or fall hushed inside of, accordingly, its own name. Bells, and then from the smudged edge of all that seemed to be left of what we called belief once, bodies, not of hunting birds, what we thought at first, but human bodies in flight, in flight and lit from within as if by ruin or triumph maybe, having made out of ruin a light, something useful by which having skimmed the water to search the meadow now for ourselves inside it, where yes, Though we shook in our nakedness, we lay naked as we've been taught to do. When afraid, what is faith but to make a gift of yourself? Give and you shall receive. Ooh. I could have worn glasses, but, you know, vanity. 
<laughs> that oh that it I, yes Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I just I just buffered really hard. Um, no, I love I love that poem, and I love that I don't know. It it feels as much of a denial of that request for so much of the poem too. And then mm-hmm. at the end, it's sort of like, it's like, it's like, and here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great poem I feel like to read because like, I don't know you, but I know that you like I've created in my head and I know what people say. I've, I've seen people like, you know, want that of your work, right? And be like, oh, Carl, will you make it like easier for us? You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, will you, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was great to see like you in poem being like, I will. And also I won't at the same time. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's I feel a personality like that's a, problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very, it's very sassy. It's a very sassy bratty bottom. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. sure. You know, it's like, I'll submit, <laughs> but I'm gonna roll my eyes. Um, and also not really. Um, and I feel like a lot of the book felt like it did open up in a way. Um, this book. And a newer, the new book, yeah, yeah, the new book. Yeah, it did sort of like, I don't know. It felt different, Carl. I don't know. I, I can't exactly put my word on it. Um, yeah, I think I was just trying to say like, thank, like I don't know, I, like as a longtime fan of your work and a continued fan of your work, it was just like, wow. Like there was this little drop of something that felt, um, I don't know, unexpectedly bright. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I never set out to do anything in particular, but- in hindsight, I feel like I'm not really, I don't think of myself as a narrative poet, hmm. but I kind of want to tell a little story. Yeah. And one thing I think is different about this book is there is this, this traveling we that is, punctuates the book. Mm-hmm. And these people who always seem to be on some kind of journey and, or, you know, they experience the weather of childhood or whatever, but we never learn, like, who are they? And so I was interested in that once I was putting the manuscript together, I'm like, oh, you have these poems that actually are more storytelling poems. But hmm. but at the same time, I'm always suspicious of narrative poetry. So maybe that's what you're maybe getting at to Denez is how the end is, because it kind of throws the narrative away in some mm-hmm. ways. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, which sometimes feels like daily life. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know, having been raised to think that life is kind of a straightforward narrative, but you don't have to be too old to realize it actually is pretty patternless. So mm-hmm. so it somehow doesn't seem true to just write a traditional narrative poem to me. But I, it's easier to say in the company of those who are not writing narrative poems, which I don't think is the case for y'all. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. Well, why I guess can you say more about what you mean when you say that you're suspicious of narrative poems? Like why? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there are things that happen in in an order, but I think that sometimes those poems suggest to me that life happens that way. And I don't think it does. It's more like we go through each day and then we look back maybe after a week or two and we realize, "Oh, there was actually a developing pattern, an arc to last week." But when we're in it, it's not like that. And, you know, the same way I think of writing a poem is patterning language and organizing thought. But that's not how we are. Like, I don't think anyone sustains one thought first and then says, now I'll move to the next thought. You know, we're kind of constantly barraged by, you know, I'm thinking about what I'm making for dinner. Do I have the groceries for it? What about the dog upstairs? And I'm doing this podcast. So, you know, those are all happening at the same time that's the falseness to me of poetry mm. because it, mm. because as soon as we write something down, it, it suggests fixity and 
And yet I feel as if most things aren't fixed. And so it's like, to me, the ongoing tease of writing is that when I first finish a poem, I feel like, ah, I, I, I came up with the right shape and I've, Mm. I now pin this sort of butterfly or something. Mm -hmm. And then I walk away and I see the butterflies actually still moving. It's like, oh, well, shit, it's still alive. Mm. And, you know, which is the reason it seems to me why and the good part of it is that's like the productive restlessness that means we keep writing the next poem, you know, like, you know, if you write a poem, a love poem, you say, I nailed love, got it right there. And then, you know, (laughs) the next thing happens, you think, fuck, I thought I knew what love was. But it's actually more complicated. Right. So. But why write the next love poem if you think that you've got it figured out? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So then, so it's like this constant push, like now this is it. And then you keep refining. And then, you know, one day you're dead. And there <laughs> I mean, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is an end, but, <laughs> but that's the only way. Right. So, so like when my students will say, like, why does Shakespeare write so many sonnets about basically the same stuff? And I feel like but you, when you read all those sonnets, you start realizing, oh, like sometimes he's happy. Then he's like, Oh, I was wrong to be happy because hmm. you're cheating on me. And, mm-hmm. and then, Oh, well, I'm, I'm cheating too. And you know, <laughs> it gets more and more complicated. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, should we move to our, our, our big question? <laughs> our great big question. Anything. Okay, cool. Sweet. Yes. Carl, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Um, what is moving you these days? I, I mean, maybe this is an easy answer for many people, but, I feel like, you know, after all these years of seeing, you know, black people being shot, you know, all, all these things, it should be like, I should be in, in somehow numb to the violence of it. But for some reason, ever since the whole George Floyd murder, the whole summer, you know, and of course this pandemic and quarantine and everything, mm-hmm. um, it sort of brought me even sort of forcefully aware of something that I knew, but sometimes it's easy, you know, in one's own academic privilege and everything to sort of observe things and, and uh, not be detached, I guess, but not maybe feel them as palpably. And I have been very changed by the events of this summer and, and I'm not really sure what the result is going to be, but I think it's also because I'm, I'm, contending with some issues in my department too Mm. that have to do with this. And I think that there's some concern among some people that Carl's like suddenly turned black on us. And it's like, (laughs) I always was people. And, you know, um, but apparently I, you know, fell in line or something to their expectations. So I don't know. I'm not going to say that the summer has radicalized me. And it's not as if I haven't always been mindful and, and, experience i feel i experience racism every single day actually um in some way but now it seems even more urgent Hmm. and and frustrating because i'm not really sure what to do with the urgency Hmm. um because Hmm. so many things yeah you can give money you can march you can do all these things but as we see each day something else happens more brutality so i don't know i was you know that 1619 project that um happened in new york times and they are doing a some kind of book version of that. And they asked me to be part of that. And uh, I, I ended up writing this poem that's in response to the sort of exact moment when Jefferson is signing the declaration and has decided to exclude um, slaves 
it, when they talk about freedom, the right to freedom and everything. So that's almost like that's the exact moment when it's consolidated. That kind of what I think of sometimes as a kind of inextricable braid of racism between black and white. And this that is like the spine of this country. Hmm. And, and it's weird to be able to sort of see the moment that exactly gets codified. And, and that's not the kind of poem I would have written before. Hmm. Um, and I had wondered, how will I write, you know, write about this? So I don't know. I feel like some of that is to do with what's going on this summer. Hmm. Race and violence have always been like part of your work have like always been present in your work so I guess my I'm I'm curious about what like what new things that urgency is bring you think that it might bring to the work if it hasn't yeah I don't know you know but I'm surprised to hear that you think it has always been there in the work because one of the criticisms I've most often gotten is that you know the poems sort of take place in a, a timeless world that doesn't seem to involve contemporary issues. And I was always frustrated about that because mm-hmm. um, first, you know, like I'd have a lot of people in particular, a lot of black poets um, used to say to me um, that I basically wasn't a black poet, um, that you don't write black. Um, and, and it was frustrating to me because, and they'd say, you don't write about black stuff, you know, like, and I thought, well, I don't know. I write about love, sex, uh, morality, whatever. I think this is stuff for everybody. And, so, or, or people would say, how come there are no black people in your poems? And it's like, because I didn't say that they were black, you're assuming they're, they're white. Is that what it is? And so, yeah, to me, I feel like I've always been writing about those things, but maybe not overtly hmm. in hmm. ways that, that some people want. It's kind of like, I don't know, you know, this piece that maybe you saw, uh, you know, that I wrote for Poetry Magazine seems forever ago now yeah. about, the politics of mere being. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at in that article is like, it's weird. You're just writing your poems and you're not necessarily trying to be political or whatever that is, but people decide you're either political or you're not. And in one moment, some, some moments, you know, your poems are being tweeted as being relevant to something. <laughs> Other moments, you know, people are wondering why are there no cell phones in your poems? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I was actually asked that one time. I was Literally, also asked, why are there no cell phones in your poems? Mm-hmm. And they also said that um, that same interviewer referred to a poem where I had a fox in the poem. They said, so where do you imagine these poems take place? Like, where do these foxes happen? And I, I said, well, actually, like in my yard. And, and, and they were like, what? And, you know, like in St. Louis, you know, you can, I mean, I don't live far from the park and they're foxes. And, but they acted like, you know, like, or these trees, like, you know, how is it that you have this urban life, but, you know, there are trees in your poems. Like, there are trees in New York City. Right. So, <laughs> right. I don't get it. I mean, it's true, though, that I, I think of there is a place in my mind that is, like, Carl Phillips' poem space. And I didn't realize mm-hmm. it until now, but I was like, oh, no, this is, like, this is a place that I imagine existing. I think of it as sort of like a, um, I don't know, like a sort of psychic island in which the poems I like happen. that. Ooh. <laughs> I like that. You know, it's interesting. That poem that I read, um, you know, because that could seem like it's some made-up place. But, you know, at least when there's that part about bells that used to have to be in their towers mm-hmm, and named. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to, in college, I drove a bus for my summer job that in this little town, Woods Hole in Massachusetts. And this, I sort of drove professors and their kids' back and forth to their labs in the beach. And, 
And each day I had to drive past this old bell tower that um, used to have a bell in it, but everyone said someone had stolen the bell. And so I've always been fascinated with bell towers, but how do you steal a bell? That's exactly what I said. Like, how does that happen? And it's like, bells are pretty heavy. And so, so, you know, I like, that's just an image, but it's still, I was just there actually a few weeks ago in that town and there's the old bell tower still. And so I think sometimes people think, are you making like these fairy tales? And I think, well, there are, there are buildings with bells in them, you know, and, or like I live, next to a cathedral. So I, you know, I see all day, like these nuns, I, the convent is just a few houses down. And so there's this weird spiritual energy around here. But at the same time, I've seen people shooting heroin up, uh, right outside my door. Um, and for some reason, this street is considered a place where the police might leave you alone. You can stop and shoot up and then move on. So, um, you know, it's an interesting mix, but I feel like we all come up with a landscape that our poems take place in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think maybe what that critique then comes out of, right, is people's frustration with access to that landscape. It's almost like that game Animal Farm that like mm. um <laughs> that Animal people play. Um uh, so, Animal Crossing, thank you. You could tell I don't play video games. So Animal Crossing. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm um, pretending to know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, cool. So this is a game called Animal Crossing. Everybody played it at the start of quarantine because nobody could go outside. And so you could like m- you make your own little island, you like farm stuff, and then you can like visit your friends. Um promise there's an analogy going on here. But I feel like maybe what we're what I'm hearing is that Franny, you even as a reader, like kind of had the key to Carl's Island a little bit. <laughs> Um, to get to wow, to get Carl to Phillips I mean I have the ultimate Animal Crossing island of contemporary I mean, poetry. I think wow. if we're talking about like different psychic islands of poets, right? I think my experience is a reader, like there have been poets, and Carl's one of them for me that I felt myself growing as a reader as I like sought to like seek that island of what the poems were doing, right? And so like I can I, I guess I understand not the critique, Carl, but I guess the question of like what's happening here. Cause I too remember being like 21 and encountering Carl Phillips for the first time and kind of saying like, this is wonderful. What's happening here? Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, wh- or, wh- or when is this was even a question. Right. Cause I, I was experienced so much of it was about um, interiority and relationship um, mm-hmm. between people that I was like, it, that it did sort of have, I don't want to say a timelessness. Cause I think that's a dangerous thing that people say poems reach for, but it felt, it, I was so zoomed in that I actually didn't care about any of those like extra markers and all that. And some people I think need that in order to access the Island. Right. They're sort of walking yeah. around looking for those things automatically they're like cool i know something about power and violence is happening here and maybe my mind could let me do the dance about race but i'm actually just like i really need the sign that signals race and that is a capital b black and that is a certain image and that is sort of these things and i and i and i had to fight against that in myself as a writer to say like how like my poems can be black even if I don't take the time to announce it, right? Even if mm-hmm. I don't take time to like casually like, you know, scroll past the hot sauce, you know, or what, you know, like, and that yes. it, it was a thing to wrestle. I feel like I've seen that happen for me in your poems and in the work of others. I'm just like, this opened up for me the longer I sought to trust myself to not need the signs mm-hmm. about what was happening here and to take yeah. this these words, these sentences, these whatevers and like take them at their worth and like really explore what is happening with power and all this other kind of stuff here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I that's very restorative to hear. And I, I also think it might have to do with um, 
interiority, you know, in, you know, Charles Rao did this um, anthology of, of African-American poetry that was kind of controversial. I, I remember there was a, I guess, Baraka sort of wrote against it. And I remember, you know, that. <laughs> but yeah. And, you know, Charles Rao is sitting there, you know, arguing for, I guess that first you have to, maybe it's kind of like first fight them fiddle that Gwendolyn mm-hmm. Brooks talks about that, you know, first you do that and then you earn your way towards being able to talk about stuff about interiority. I can see how Robert Hayden at his time wasn't the right poet for a lot of black readers. Um, you know, I get that. And, and where some, somebody like Baraka is writing something that's much more direct and doesn't require a lot of, you know, analysis and meditation um, because that's not its, you know, point, I think, but I think it's kind of human to be afraid of being lost. Mm-hmm. And I am drawn to writers where I have to commit to being lost. You know, early mentors, for, not mentors, but like their books anyway, I hadn't met them at the time, were people like um, Bridget Peggy Kelly and Lucy Brock-Broido, their first books, and which are really weird. And, and they never, they just became weirder poets <laughs> as they continued along. And but but I would sort of open a, a book by Lucy and sort of say, okay, here we go. You know, I'm I'm not supposed to try to compare it to how my life is, but you know, just open yourself up. And I think it can be hard for people, but I also understand that sometimes that kind of work can feel like, you know, maybe for some readers it can feel like privileged or self-indulgent when there's something much more urgent going on in their lives. And, you know, but I, I always thought that was the reason why there's supposed to be so many different kinds of writers. You know, we don't we don't have to read everything. We don't have to love everything. And I just feel like everything should just be respected as, you know, it needs to be there because someone wrote it. And you don't have a responsibility to love it. Definitely. I, I don't know. I'm 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 like sort of wrestling this with this. But because I think that there was like in especially in my early <laughs> like early 20s, mid 20s. I don't know. The other day I was just like looking back at like a picture of myself giving a reading when I was like 23 and, you know, said something about like poetry as radical mm-hmm. storytelling or something. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> like, you know, like was anyone ever so young? <laughs> I'm going to tell you someone <laughs> was. Um, I've been thinking about like the, like how much I clung to the necessity of urgency. Um, and I am continuing to cling to urgency, but I think that it feels different. I, I like have found myself really pushing against the idea that a deep exploration of interior life is not like an urgent matter for people, sure. for all of us, you know, um, mm-hmm. for oppressed mm. people to like be able to be really fluent in that terrain like how is that not like a like a an immediate and necessary thing for us you know i i I agree i think i was actually just writing about this i'm writing this book of essays i can't believe uh that i agree to do but i'm writing a book of essays that apparently is due next summer and talk about feeling old they said they wanted me to write a book that would contain the wisdom that I would like to leave for young people, oh, no. um, oh, you know, no. and leave like, I guess when I'm dead, um, you know, that this will be a kind of portable book that people can carry for years when they want to understand, you know, what's the value of silence? You know, what's the value of how do you do a writing practice? You know, all that kind of 
whatever. Um, they basically just asked you to write your letter to a young poet and then peace. <laughs> they actually, they actually said, you know, think of Rilke's. Oh my you know, god! Like literally, yeah. They yeah, said, wow. you know, something like that, and you know, something. Uh, okay, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be Rilkean. But anyway, <laughs> I was writing about um, about stamina and the role of urgency and stamina, and I was thinking about how at a Q and A few years ago, someone said, you kind of stopped being gay after your second book. What's that about? <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, I was, and so in this essay, I was thinking about that and thinking how sometimes I feel like in my first book, I was writing almost literally to save my life. Mm-hmm. And it was a real moment of crisis. Then the second book, I feel like I was writing to kind of give shape to a new life that I'd realized was my own. But after that, of course, it's not that I, you know, stopped being gay or queer or anything. But I feel like, yeah, there was a lot of working my way through, like, the erotic and everything in the first couple of books because I wasn't even understanding about it and I didn't have the same experiences. And then after a while, you you know, like you're in a relationship for many years, whatever, and, and it doesn't mean that you've stopped being alive, but it seems to me that interiority is more what happens, you know, that you're not trying to figure out, like, Am I queer? Well, that's been answered, you know, or um, can I be in a relationship? That's been answered. You're in one. But now the questions of how do you sustain a relationship? How how does that deepen or not become boring? Mm-hmm. Or why do you feel you need a relationship? You know, these kinds of questions, I think, are the questions of maturity, which is also why I think it makes sense that a lot of people's first books are packed with so much in so many directions because there's just a lot the process. And, and I think that's a real challenge for the, the books to come after, or like what I'm realizing now. I mean, I used to hear people talk about some old poet, like um, Charles Wright, and they'd say, Oh, you know, just write the same poem over and over now. And I think, well, Carl, now you are finding out what it's like to be in your sixties and still have something to say. That is a challenge. (laughs) Um, And so, but there's still urgency to that too, you know, to, to interior thoughts. I agree with you. I should have just said, yes, you're right. (laughs) I could have said that. (laughs) No, I'm glad that you didn't just say that. Um, I mean, speaking of like the fact that you certainly didn't stop being queer after your, after your second book. um, Can we talk a little bit about like the erotic and. um, Absolutely. (laughs) I've been waiting all morning. (laughs) For someone to come around the corner and say, can we talk about the erotic? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, now with quarantine, no one does it. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, the gays are taking a risk it. out here. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can yeah. find a way around it. <laughs> Somebody every day on Grinders willing to take that risk. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, I we were just we were talking before about like about eroticism in your poems, um, and specifically like the eroticism of of your syntax. You know, I think I've read I was reading an interview where you described syntax as being like you're likening the things that syntax can do to like the power dynamics of like BDSM and um Mm -hmm. and things and I guess I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about um uh maybe also like on the subject of like finding new things to say like if there are things that you're discovering or wrestling with right now in in that terrain the the kind of Venn diagram of the erotic and the syntactical (laughs) Huh. Um, okay. 
I mean, yes, I do think syntax is erotic, though I didn't think of it before. It's more like um, people kept trying to explain this. I didn't even know what syntax was, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was just writing and people were talking about syntax, and I thought syntax was the same as grammar. And, um, mm. and I would always be frustrated because, like, why, why are people talking about that? So, but when I looked at it, I thought, so oh, I see. Hear, I think, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like, you know, whenever one says, let's, you know, let's talk about Carl Phillips' sentence. It's like, I don't know. This is how I mm. think. You know, I'm not trying. I, th- I think they think I take a normal sentence. Then I spend hours figuring out how can I make it all screwed up? And, <laughs> you know, no one will get it. And, and no, it's like, but I do see how syntax is the element that allows the rules of grammar to be manipulated. And that's when I started thinking about BDSM, which I've always well, in my adult life, I've always been fascinated by, and the ways in which power shifts. And also BDSM, not just, you know, all the equipment and all that kind of things, but I, I feel that all relationships um, are about power shifts, mm-hmm. constantly being recalibrated, or at least all interesting relationships to me are. And so it seems to me that that's also what syntax can do is in a way, become the power source mm-hmm. for a sentence. And and I like if how it can feel in the actual reading. It feels as if you've been through something physical. And so I always think of it as giving a poem muscularity in a way, you know, as opposed to just sort of what sometimes can feel like flat sentences to me. Even though if all you do is fancy syntax all the time, that's also overbearing and horrible. So guess that covers the syntax part of it and the erotics part of it. Uh, I used to think that this would be something I would outgrow. I was told I was in a very long relationship with somebody for 18 years and who would routinely tell me that wait till you're 40. When you're 40, sex won't be the biggest deal in the world to you. But that has been the reverse, actually. It mm. like ratcheted it even higher. And I thought, whoa. Um, and, yes, and, Benjamin Bottom. So, <laughs> um, yes, or Tommy Top, you know. <laughs> Tommy Top, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and so what to me has been an interesting challenge is how to negotiate that. Um, mm. Because first of all, there's how you, you may feel that way, but also, you know, the body isn't always going to be that way. Um, like, I suppose, up for those things. And I don't know. I don't know when it happens that one realizes that maybe it seems an obvious thing, but the quantity doesn't have to be the point. Um, that the, in the same way that I feel like with subject matter as a poet, that instead of getting more broad, I've just sort of drilled in and deepened. I think that's that can happen with the erotic, that you don't have to sort of, and this is no judgment if you do choose to have like many partners or, you know, be more promiscuous. That seems great too, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can actually have the same sort of thrill with one person, though it requires a different kind of work um, of commitment. It seems to me to keeping on, you know, that both people have to sort of feel like, Oh, sex is actually a serious bonding force between us. And And it's not something that we have to think, Oh, we've aged out of it. Um, and, and, you know, that's great if maybe if, if you do, but my, my father, my mother died, uh, I don't know, in two, in 2008 and my father within a year or two met this woman, the time he said, you know, I, 
I've met this, this young woman and I, I need to tell you about it. And it's like, and he was 80 at the time. And, um, and she turned out to be 76. And I thought, okay, that's, you know, I, she's not 26. Um, so, but he, he kept telling me about their sex life. And I mean, I had to tell him to stop because it was apparently out of control. You know, they couldn't get enough. And, well, and I said, dad, I really don't um, yeah, need to hear it. And he said, I'm just letting you know how it's going to be for you, son. And I thought, wow. And they got married when he turned 80, when he turned 81 and they're still married and I guess everything's hot. And I thought, you know, I guess who knows how it's going to play out. But, you know, I kind of did think that probably like in your 70s, you just mellow out and, you you know, you just hug each other and fall asleep. And that's Not if you're in the Phillips family. Uh Apparently not. (laughs) Apparently not. So, you know, I've, I've got something to aspire to. You know, I'm only 61. We'll see how I am at 86. That's what he yes. is. So, <laughs> got to get there first, though. Who knows? <laughs> I'm wondering in that like long, deep engagement, right? Because you are like, um, like in the erotic writing, yes, in Texas erotic, but you're also just one of my like favorite folks. I think like when I think about like writers that I enjoy writing about sex, mm-hmm. like mm. gotta have it in the top five. For somebody who writes about sex like you and maybe in a way that like for right that woman at the reading, she can't even read it as being about queerness or gayness or sex and so forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what do you find yourself now seeing when you look at sex, um, either in your life or in the work, you know, I think that has also been a sort of brilliant investigation of that I've loved. Like, I'll never forget it. It's, I think it's it's an art of daring and you like share a poem of your own and then it's a beautiful poem. And then at, after you're describing it, you're like, yeah, like I saw two dudes fucking in the woods against a fallen tree. And yeah. I was just like, where? I was like, oh, like that. But that is the work of somebody who can like look at sex and see everything happening around and within and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I guess, yeah, what do you what do you look at or think about when you look at sex these days? Well, uh, hmm. I'm just thinking I'm, now I'm thinking about that scene in the woods. Um, <laughs> I suppose I in my own life, what I look at is the challenge of how to keep it different. I mean, one of the big challenges for me is I'm, I feel like I'm a very um, sexually restless person. Um, it took me a while to figure that out. So, and it took me several partners to figure it out. Um, and, and during, during those relationships, um, I was also very invested in cruising. And um, it seemed to me that promiscuity was the only natural way to be. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, because it also provides constant newness and that's very thrilling. Then I end up in a relationship, which I'm in, where it was made very clear to me from the start, this relationship isn't going to happen unless you are monogamous. That's what I was told. And I thought, you know, I've met this guy that I do not want to live without. I can't imagine living without him. And so I'm going to do it. And, and so the challenge became like, how's that? That's fine. You know, first few months, you know, it's like, everything's hot. And then how do you keep that? Because it was so unnatural to me. I just thought, oh, you know, like I thought how you keep your relationship exciting is you supplement (laughs) with a lot of outside activity. And so to learn that, oh, actually that's all within um, the relationship has been, uh, you know, it turns out to be a rewarding challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. how I look at sex is how, you know, how do you keep it fresh? And, um, and especially, you know, there, as we mentioned before the show that I'm 22 years older than my partner. And so, you know, there's this idea of like, you, you want to stay 
energized and in the game or something. And um, so I guess it's that. That's how I look at poetry too about writing. That that to me, each time the challenge is how are you going to make this new for yourself? You know, maybe the world won't see it. They don't have to think that. But how do you? How can you write a poem where you leave and think I've just experienced something new again? And that's how I want to feel after fucking. I, I want to feel like, wow, that was that was different, even though you've done it a million times. Mm. And mm. Um, so I guess that's how I look at it. Um, I've also been thinking about this quarantine and how it has affected a lot of queer culture, queer male culture, mm. especially because um, I, I don't have to think about that. But I was thinking if I were single, um, what would I do? And I, I, you know, I think I would hide in my house. But I know that's ultimately not what would happen. And, you know, I probably have to have a small group of people in rotation whom I trusted and all that. But I don't know. Rotation. <laughs> there, the, the rotation, <laughs> let me, I, I, will, I, I'm, I will report that you're right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you have to stay alive. You have to Ro- live. Yeah. There's so. pe- but people, yeah. There's some real deep like rotations and just contracts <laughs> and like packs that I feel like are happening in uh in. But it's 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 so it has changed wholeness forever, hasn't it? Like I've been thinking about bathhouse culture and stuff like that. It's just like mm-hmm. it feels like I don't know. It just feels kind of ripped away mm-hmm. and like you know it is this thing like I. I've been finding it really hard to sort of imagine the next for so many different things because <laughs> I'm just like it feel you know from within it just feels like the world has to be different for a while and maybe will never be the same again. Um, especially if we, as we lose like physical spaces and stuff like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just really, um, I've been mourning the way the sort of sexual freedom um, of sort of, of a lot of queernesses for this. Yeah. yeah. I actually think though, and sometimes this gives me a little bit of hope um, because I, you know, when I was in college, the last thing you really thought about, when you're having sex was like, you were going to get a disease or anything, or, you know, it was all pre HIV, pre AIDS. And what a time. I feel like that's the golden age of gay fucking right there. Really? Can you imagine? (laughs) And the shift that happened where something like the specter of possible death, (sighs) the idea that that's hovering, um, you know, seems really, and of course, you know, by now, most generation, it's kind of like equivalent to how I didn't, I didn't grow up where we had to think about shooters in classes but, you know, the idea that, that as children, you just know that now. And so I keep thinking that, you know, people thought that, oh, wow, sex is going to be changed forever um, as a result of this. And it was in some ways, but on, on the other ways, um, I feel like queer culture evolved in a lot of ways to kind of, and, and you know, medicine and things like that, um, to make it so that at least there was a different vitality so I, that's what I keep thinking here that, oh, yeah, we've lost these spaces. Um, it's interesting. I recently drove past the bathhouse here in St. Louis. There is one. And uh, it was packed with the, the parking lot was packed. And I thought, oh, um, it's still going strong, I guess. Uh, but I, I was a little surprised at that. But I feel like, yeah, I, this social distancing can't last forever. Um, wow. I can't imagine it. I, it's one of those times when I think, yeah, it is handy on one hand to have a regular partner whom you live with. On the other hand, that presents its challenges too, because you realize that like I'm used to being alone in the house for at least eight hours every day. And so when both people are working from home every day, mm-hmm. that's, uh, I've, I've heard there are a lot of people breaking up 
Yeah. I mean, they just realized, you know what? You were great until I had to actually deal with you all the time. And, you know, or it's like, it's like these, uh, straight couples when their kids grow up and leave and then they look at each other like, my God, who are you? Right. Uh, yeah. It's like the kids distracted us, but now what? You raised your your hand, Denise, as if that. Oh, I was just, to you. I was just. Oh yeah, I, 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 yeah, I recently broke up. Um, oh, I'm sorry, or I'm oh, happy, depending okay. on how you feel about it. You know. Thank you for both. I feel. Um, you know, I think it was hard. You know, and I think it it was hard. It was definitely Corona influenced. I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really beautiful and wild ride uh, through the quarantine with that one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. No harm done. No harm done. So heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's all good. No harm but heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, there's always that. I don't know. I can't quote it exactly, but something happens in some Louise Glick poem and then she's devastated. And then she turns around and says, wait a minute, I can use this. And it's like, yep. You know, so, you know, or as I tell my students when they sort of say, you know, do I have to suffer forever? And I think, no, just once and deeply, because then you can live <laughs> off of that for quite a few books. So, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, you don't have to have routine suffering. You just have to remember and yeah. reflect. Um, well, you, you can do it two ways. You can either do one good deep one and you get a couple mm-hmm. of books out of that or you just do, a, you know, just a tiny suffering every couple of years. It's like that, people who true. are like, oh, uh, is it better to just like eat a bunch of snacks during the day or like three big meals? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and how, yeah. What's your trauma intake like? <laughs> well, it's like, you know, those, who is it? like Adele, you know, or, or Taylor Swift, you know, and like, it seems like a relationship breakup seems to re- be required for the next album, you know? And, and so, yeah. Are you a, are you a one sustaining on one suffering uh, kind of writer? No, I also tell my students, and this always silences the room, that I think it's useful to be routinely heartbroken um, you know, that happens. Like, it doesn't have to be in like a relationship with a person. Right. You can be heartbroken about a number of things. Your dog can die, you know, or um, you're heartbroken by the news or something. Mm-hmm. But some way in which you get this reminder that to be alive um, is joyous and hurts. And I think, you know, without both of those, it's hard to make something that's believable in a poem mm. or, you know, any kind of art. Mm-hmm. I, I just stop me when I start saying things like that. Like that's what art requires, you know. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't even know what art is. So you know, and I don't want to know. I actually don't. I, I feel like as soon as you think you know, then you're doomed. That's incredible to hear coming from someone who is a highly decorated professor of poetry <laughs> at, a, as a, at a highly acclaimed institution for learning about poetry. Yeah, but, you know, the thing that people, I think, don't know or sometimes forget is, like, I'm not a real professor. Um, this was this was told to me fairly routinely when I first got this job, which was as a visiting writer. I wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't tenure track or anything. Um, it turned into that. But I, when I came here, only a year before, I'd been a high school Latin teacher. That's all I wanted to ever be is high school teacher and I love working with that age group and it seemed kind of important group that to mentor um and so I've always I always feel you know I maybe we all feel fraudulent but I've always felt panicked um being this professor because I I feel like I don't have anything to say except let's all get lost in this together um 
you know, now I just teach graduate students in this MFA program and they'll ask me things like, am I a poet? Is this poem good? It's like, I don't know. I mean, there's shit in the New Yorker every week that people apparently think is poetry, whatever. Um, you know, and there's good stuff too. But then whatever I like, somebody else probably thinks is crap. So, mm-hmm. you know, and there are plenty of poets apparently walking the earth right now and with books and prizes and they're not poets to me. So, you know, um, I mean, that's my, but you know, we all have our opinions. Yeah. Someone's saying the same thing about me too. That's fine. And I kind of feel like the joy of making this stuff is that we're always trying to figure out what it is and, mm. and to actually be able to say, Oh, I, this is a poem or that is, I mean, or, or how much is something I'm not ready for yet? Like when I dismiss poems in a, like in the New Yorker, as I just did, how much of that is I'm not, I'm not there yet. Hmm. I'm ready for that particular poem, you know? So I try to not be definitive, I guess. Hmm. And I think the problem is that for me anyway, and maybe for you, you both too, uh, I kind of grew up thinking professors do have the knowledge and I'm supposed to take it in. And then you start to realize as with parents that, oh, they're, they're fucked up too. Mm -hmm. And they're scared and they don't know everything. And, and the ones who, who act like they do should never trust them. Totally, (laughs) totally, totally. (laughs) I mean, like the best thing I ever learned when I was a high school teacher and I had to figure it out really quickly is to say, I don't know when a student asked me something. I thought I was supposed to have all the answers, but as soon as you say you actually don't know, you win their trust Mm. because they Mm. see, you know, that you're not acting like you've got the secret box of lore Mm -hmm. and they might get the key. But like, yeah, we're all kind of lost together. I'd be a lousy parent because that's what I'd be saying to a five-year-old. You know what? I don't know what life is either. You know? Yeah, cry. I'm going to cry with you. I don't know what's wrong. So, you know, and you look to your parents to be like pillars of strength, but I'd, I'd sit there and say, you're right. It's a mess. You know? Whatever. Your child will be rough. I have a rough, like, first, like, six years, but they'll probably be pretty cool. I guess. I'd say, you're right to be scared. I'm damn scared, kid. <laughs> Anyway. Well, also, I think that, like, the idea of the sage, wise, not just professor, but, like, the, the, the wise poet who, like, knows all of the things and has all of the wisdom to, like, impart. I don't know. I think I've just been, like, um, finding a lot of joy in your cooking show, in your Instagram cooking videos. I mean, uh-huh. yeah, as, as the, <laughs> like, as the counterpart, not, like, not, like, the... I don't know, an argument against the wisdom, your own wisdom or anything, but just to be like, I'm a person who's like cooking, going to cook a meal and like sing karaoke with my dog and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, first of all, thank you for the cooking show. And then also, how'd that happen? How'd you start uh, cooking on Instagram? <laughs> well, this is like to me one of the best things that quarantine has provided me. Well, first of all, I used to, before the quarantine stuff happened, I used to do this thing where I'd be driving around in my Jeep. And my dog is always with me in the Jeep. And so, you know, we do do like a little karaoke (laughs) and, you know, and I thought the phone wasn't capable of recording anything for more than 30 seconds. So, so I would just do a little snippet of a song. And then, and then my millennial partner told me, you know, you can, the phone does this other thing. I'm like, oh, really? So, so then I thought, there's a 31st second. Yeah, there is. Uh huh. (laughs) So I thought, okay, so I would do like these little five minute snippets of making scones or something. And then I don't know. It just, 
I learned about the, the video part of Instagram and how you can actually like for an hour or whatever. So I just did one and all these people started responding on Instagram and I don't, you know, I'm not a big, like how many likes do I get? But, but what I really started liking was people were saying that this was, I'd only done a few and people said it was getting them through. Mm -hmm. And, and at the same time I had joined this reading group through Twitter where everyone was reading war and peace, uh, like 10 pages a day or something. Cause I had never thought I would ever read that book. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of getting me through too, like this weird thing. And I thought, you know, usually I feel, you know, I feel like, oh, Carl, all you do is write poems. What do you do to help anybody? And, and, and they would start sending me pictures like, oh, I made the recipe. You know, I made this at oh, home so and, uh, you know, and I did that. And I thought, what? And, you know, turn into that kind of thing mm-hmm. where just yesterday I was talking to someone and saying, you know, maybe it's time for this show to end because, you know, it's, it's getting like how and maybe it's predictable. And they were saying, oh, no, you know, you got to keep going. And uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know when it's going to evolve away, but it also has been the best preparation for me for zoom teaching. I haven't started. Mm-hmm. I'm starting in a couple of weeks and I was on leave last semester. So, but I found that I'm actually pretty much at ease or as my partner would say, you're a little too at ease in front of the camera, <laughs> you know, and it's been fun. It's been fun doing that show. And, and what I like is like the, like I had a recent episode where the blender didn't work or another one where the pastry didn't turn out. And, you know, the people who are watching are sending these live comments saying, you can do it, Carl, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And, I thought, you know, but what I like, uh, like, I don't like how the cooking shows are now. Nothing goes wrong, it seems. Hmm. But in the old, like, Julia Child days, I remember there was an episode where she dropped a roasted, like, turkey or something on the kitchen floor. After, as she was taking it out, it slid (laughs) off the plate. And then she just picked it up and she said, this is why you don't let your guests into your kitchen, you know? And she put it on the plate and brought it on out to serve. (laughs) And I thought, wow, like, you know, they didn't edit that because back then it was like these little live things and... They didn't edit that out, but so I like how the cooking show sometimes doesn't work out or I taste something that's like, this sucks. <laughs> like, okay, people, doesn't always work out. Uh, kind of like a poem. Yeah. Maybe it's another form of like with teaching, it's another form of saying, yeah, we're all kind of in this together. And sometimes we're, you know, not going to get it right. Even if you're the mm-hmm. teacher, you don't always know. It seems I feel like I would so much rather have like a, a, a companion in learning than to climb up to the mountain to get my wisdom from the, from the, from the sage, you know? Yeah. It's, it's why I, um, I'm doing to me this radical thing where I'm teaching this prosody seminar this semester that I've taught for years. And I've always used like these books, like by Alfred Korn, his prosody book and all these, but there, he has a sentence in his book where he talks about, Many are called to the feet of Parnassus, but not everyone is allowed to scale to the top or whatever. <laughs> and I thought this is so obnoxious and off-putting to anyone who is trying to do this poetry thing. So I decided we're not going to have any prosody textbooks. We're just going to look mm. at poems. And then to me, the real radical thing is when I decided that we will only read poems. Well, Shakespeare made the cut, but otherwise we're only reading poems by people of color like and our standard text every week is going to be Gwendolyn Brooks. And so there'll always be that. And I guess I feel like teaching should be an invitation, you know, and, and so often it isn't, it's almost like a challenge. Like, can you live up to this and learn? And as opposed to 
come on in. I'm inviting you to come in and let's do this. And I feel like you don't need to have a, you don't need to have a prosody textbook that tells you, and really who cares what, I don't care about the terminology. I mean, I guess it's nice to be able to scan a line of blank verse, but you know, do we have to talk about normative rhyme and things that I don't even understand? I realized I don't understand the textbooks I'm using. So I threw them out. (laughs) That's basically what it was. I thought, I don't, I don't know what this stuff is and I'm not going to pretend I do. And then the students are going to be intimidated and, and think he understands it, but I'm a fool. And that's how I felt all through college, like an idiot. So, you know, I try not to perpetuate that. We have reached the point in our show where we are going to play some gizames um, with with Carl Phillips. This is this is wonderful, and we, I'm like living my dreams right now. I'm about to play a game with Carl Phillips. Oh, no. That sounds dirty. Dad, it should. Oh, <laughs> very daddy to us all. Uh huh. <laughs> I thought I was just an auntie. <laughs> you could be that too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like gay men, especially you, you are an auntie or a daddy, depending on the outfit. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, auntie until there's leather. You know. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> All right um, so our first game is called um, Fast Punch or Speed Bag or the Best of Things, the Worst of Things. Carl, we are going to give you ten categories, and you are going to tell us the best of that category or the worst of that category. Do you feel like being a optimist or a pessimist for today's episode? I'm going to shoot for optimism. Wow. Everybody's so optimistic. Well, I guess I feel like, you know, there's so much negativity right now. It's great. Love it. Love it. Yeah. yeah. For the people. That's also against my nature to be optimistic. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, a little stretch. A little exercise. We love mm-hmm. it. All right. Um, we'll start the clock. Franny, you want to go first? Yes. Okay. Clock starts now. Okay. Best kind of pie. If I liked pie, oh, probably blackberry. Wow, a pie hater. Wow. But I don't eat pie. I don't like it. Wow. Those were both the correct answer. No to pie, but if so, blackberry. (laughs) I agree. Uh All right. um, Best city to take a walk. I was going to say San Francisco, but I forgot how steep it is. Um, I'll say St. Louis because it usually feels like an abandoned movie set. Mm. And Mm. so I kind of like that desolation. Mm. Nice. Um, Best... uh, Kind of vegetable to grill. Oh, asparagus. Mm. Um, best plant in a poem. Uh, Pakistandra. Whoa. Whoa. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced. Um, best thing to hear said to you during sex. Oh. Um, no, it's not. Okay. Um, stop. Don't stop. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Great. Stop. Don't stop. No, I want a little struggle, but I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but the struggle is understood as it's necessary. Yeah. What Amazing. is this podcast? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> all right. Um, best dead poet. Of all time? Uh, yeah, of all the deads. Of all yeah. of the deads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know. Uh, I guess today I'll say it's, is Shakespeare too easy an answer? No. No, we'll take it. it. But he really wasn't mainly a poet. So I don't know if I really, maybe I'd have to go with somebody like. They gave that one dude the Nobel Prize for literature. So it's fine if we give Shakespeare the poetry. Dylan, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sorry. Stevie Wonder was my Dylan. I'm sorry. I don't really. <laughs> yeah. Best kind of dog, breed of dog. Well, probably because this is what I have. Black and tan coon hound. Mm, one of the best dogs I've ever had. Best of your book titles. <laughs> oh, Silver Chest. That was really good. That's my joy. That's my favorite. <laughs> okay, best thing that someone could say about your poems? That they had helped them understand something important about themselves mm. that they never had understood. Mm, love it. Best rule to throw away? Um, that you can't do X in a poem, mm. which could cover anything because you can. And those rules should all be thrown out. Amazing. Boom. Yay, we did it. Great. Hooray. Oh, okay. Yeah. We survived it. Yeah. We did. There was a little there was kind of some tension there. I know. You know? It's like, wow, I don't know. And I'm still regretting the Shakespeare. I'm not really sure about that, but you know, he's pretty good. Well, who who else would you have said if you if you were going to know. I mean, him? you know, I was thinking who are the people I actually turn to the most often and I think, well, there's there's the boring answer of the Homer of the Iliad. You know, but that's important. But then there's Robert Hayden. And mm. I, I go back to those poems all the time and and keep finding more in them. So and then there's like the Tang Dynasty poets like Li Po and Du Fu have been like super important to me. And mm. I don't know. Um, there's a lot of dead people. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of there dead really people. Are. It could have been harder, though. You could have asked me about living people. And then that gets really touchy yeah that no yeah, slightly that's... less spicy yeah. slightly mm-hmm. less spicy to ask yeah. about the dead folks <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um okay cool should we do our other game yeah yes great now we are going to play um a game that we like to play at the end of every episode called this versus that um where we will put two things into two different corners um and you have to tell us which one would win in a fight a physical fight um and so for this edition of this versus that we have in this corner we have sex in the other corner we have sentences so who would win in a fight sex versus sentences i would say sentences but it would depend on whose sentences Mm -hmm. i think sentences can outlast a good sentence has more stamina than Sex, you know, sex comes to its end, but a good sentence is sturdy enough to go for generations. Whoa. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I surprised even myself there. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Carl, maybe you are a little smart. (laughs) Wow, what a sentence. You you can go all night, I can go generations. Yeah, no, that's really (laughs) Well, I mean, you know. Wow. It's like we can have we can have sex all our lives and then we die. But, you know, maybe we leave behind some sentences that people still reading. So our sentences have outlived our sexual life. Ooh. Wow. wow. Mm. Right. Right. Mm. New definition of having a good stroke. Wow. <laughs> but it's all it's also a reason to really commit to sex because now you know that, oh, well, sex is fleeting. So better really enjoy it. Mm. <sighs> Truer mm. words, man. Truer words. Um, should we, should we close it out there? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Carl, would you, uh, do us the honor of reading us one more poem? Yes. It's called, is it true? All legends once were rumors. And it was as we'd been told it would be some stumbling wingless. Others flew beheaded. 
But at first, when we looked at them, we could see no difference. The way it can take a while to realize about how regretfulness is not regret. As for being frightened, though for many animals the governing instinct when most afraid is to attack, what about the tendency of songbirds in a storm towards silence? Is that fear too? For mostly, yes, we were silent, tired as well, though as much out of boredom as for the need to stretch a bit, why not the rest on foot, we at last decided. And dismounting, each walked with his horse close beside him. We mapped our way north by the stars, old school, until there were no stars, just the weather of childhood, where it's snowing forever. intelligent and surprisingly sexy time with Carl. I know, truly, truly surprisingly sexy. But like, why, why be surprised? We have read the poems, you know? I think it was, it was more like, you know, like I've like, you know, interacted with Carl and seen him before. I think um, Mm -hmm. I'm always impressed when like um, your people that you consider heroes like show up to you as just like real people. And it's just like, oh my God, you (laughs) you know? Incredible. Yeah. We're talking about sex with Carl Phillips. Like, you know, like even though like that's regular, there's a part of me that's always going to freak out about that. I know. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. For a man who literally has 15 books, he is incredibly down to earth and down to chat. Hella books. Hella books. How do you write that many books? That's a lot. Like, I, I don't know if I'll get there, but I hope I do. For any what it, do you have a fifteenth book in you? What are you what kind of question? <laughs> um some... like what is your fifteenth book about? Like let's imagine. Like oh, you're God. on book two right now, thirteen books later. <laughs> thirteen what books is later. Choi on? How insane have I gotten? Like what have I allowed myself to start doing at book fifteen? Um I think that book fifteen is like a fucking like pop-up book you know what i mean like it's got slidey things that you can slide in and out it's got pages that you're supposed to rip out not one single fuck is at all given anymore it's just the book that i want to make either that or it's just like my diary entries it's just like me having recorded 15 second monologues to myself and then writing them down yeah. Both are so on brand. <laughs> it's yeah, but just like the the common denominator is that like I don't care anymore. <laughs> like I just don't care about how you feel about this book and what you think about it. This is just what I want to make. And so maybe I don't know, it would be nice to try to like take some of that and imbue it into what I'm making now, you know? Just like a yeah, no fucks given except me and the poem. I want the Freddy Choi pop-up book. I'm pretty sure it scares the shit out of me, <laughs> but it sounds pretty cool. Uh, it sounds pretty cool. Damn What's it. your 15th book? What are you doing in book 15? Oh, I ain't got a 15th now? book. Well, you know, I think around like... <laughs> I don't know. Book, you are pretty on track to book, have a 15th I, book, I, I think. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I think like around like book nine, I probably got to pick up some new traumas. It's got to make some shit happen in my life, you know. so mad at you. I'm so mad. So book 15, I don't know. Maybe that'll be when I actually write a novel. Like, I don't think I'll ever Mm. write a novel. But, like, if I've done 14 books, (laughs) like, maybe I'll write a novel at that point, you know. And (laughs) I want to Or maybe you'll just, like, call it a novel. It'll just be, like, poems, but it'll be, like, a novel, you know. Yeah, you know. (laughs) But it'll be, like, some dude that's, like, trying to roll a blunt, but his kids keep interrupting him. And that's the whole novel. 
I love that we're talking about this as being like, like what I'm just gonna do whatever the fuck. And Carl Phillips's fifteenth book is like so good, <laughs> like so beautifully crafted. Yeah, you know? I think that's what you get though. Is like Carl is like has like no, there's no forgiveness for what he cares to pay attention to. Mm. You know, there's like absolutely no apology for that. And I think that yeah. is what you get to with the fifteenth book is that like. I've been paying attention for so long and this is what I'm looking at right now. And like, Mm -hmm. I really truly don't care if like you listen or not. I know you might be doing it now because you listened 14 times before, but (laughs) but here it is. Like, you know, like what permission to like obsess and look in a way that I I hope we all can invite into like our our writing lives earlier than the 15th book, right? Like, oh, if we could write our 15th book first. Yes, absolutely. The spirit of the 15th fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> the spirit of the 15th fucking. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, cool. Well, um, let's pay homage to some stuff and get out of here. Yeah. Um, first person I'm going to thank, we were talking about it earlier before we started recording, but I'm going to thank Krispy Kremes um, <laughs> for those delicious, delicious donuts. They used to have a brand here in Minnesota. They don't anymore. I just looked it up. The closest Krispy Kreme is in Iowa. I might make that trip. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> just might. Is that too much? Would you drive 227 miles for Krispy Kremes? No, uh, I would not. One has family in Atlanta. One gets hot Krispy Kremes twice a year. You know what I mean? So. Right. Well, next time you hear me, I might have me some Iowa Krispy Kremes. So so shout out to Krispy Kremes. And you're so delicious that you have me actually considering driving four hours in order to have your delicious, hot, and sparkly, sparkly, um, wet-ass donuts. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I believe the proper term is wet-ass. <laughs> yeah, wet-ass. <laughs> Them wet-ass donuts. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I would like to... Uh, in the in a similar spirit, thank Waffle House. I don't know if we have thanked Waffle House on this <gasps> wow. podcast before, but shout out Waffle it's House. It's been time, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, thank you, thank you, Waffle House. Thank you, Hash Browns, um, for making me possible and all of my artistry possible. Um, we also want to thank Idalmi Noriega and Itza Blancas at the Poetry Foundation. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Daniel Kissinger. Um, and thank you to Post Loudness. And thank you to you for continuing to listen to our podcast and um, coming along for this strange ride that it continues to be. Uh, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at DSThePodcast. Like Franny said, thank you for listening to our strange little show, especially in these strange little times. Um, Not little at all. These strange big times Mm -hmm. that we're living in. Uh, We really appreciate y'all. As always, our hearts um, and prayers go out to y'all. Stay safe. Make good risk. Make good action where you live. Um, We love y'all. Be safe. Bye.